Every day, traders and investors dive in to tackle the ever-changing markets to find opportunity. Futures Radio Show is your number one source for answers to the questions that all market participants want to ask. Veteran futures trader Anthony Crudelli sits down with the most influential leaders and top traders in the industry. Now, here's your host, Anthony Crudelli. What's up, everybody? Anthony Crudelli here, and thank you for tuning in for this episode with Anthony Drager. Futures Radio Show is sponsored by CME Group. They are the world's leading and most diverse futures and options exchange. CME Group's markets help individuals and businesses around the world effectively manage risk. For access to free educational tools and resources for the active individual trader, please visit activetrader.cmegroup.com. Remember, new shows are posted on Mondays and Thursdays. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Now, if you're enjoying the show, everybody, please leave a review on iTunes. This show is also sponsored by Trading Technologies, FTSE Russell, RJO Futures, and Top Step Trader. To learn about some great offers that these sponsors have for our listeners, please visit futuresradioshow.com slash sponsors. Now, today I spoke with Futures Trader and founder of Edge Trading Group, Anthony Drager. Ant and I have a lot of trading friends in common, and we actually have a very similar backstory. So we kicked off today's show with Ant's backstory and why he got involved in trading futures. We discussed how he developed his strategy and found his edge in trading. Ant explains how he uses market correlations, market reactions, and last but not least, his process for executing his trades and how he sizes his positions. So without further ado, let me take you right to the interview with Anthony. And you and I have a lot of fellow trader friends. You actually worked for a company that a lot of my very close friends worked for. And you and I got to talking, I think just about a year ago. And uh, very interesting backstory you have, pretty similar to mine. And I figured, you know what, on the call today, let's just start off there. Tell everybody a little bit about yourself and how you got started trading futures. Well, it was uh, my before knowing what a future was, which most people don't nowadays. When people get into trading, I think they start in Forex or stocks, and futures are the last thing they might find. So it had nothing to do with futures. It was just in the 80s, coming from a um, a big family. I was the youngest of eight kids. And in the 70s and 80s, my dad would invest in a few stocks when nobody knew what the stock market was. So every night at dinner, he'd have the business channel on because there was no internet, obviously, to follow his stocks. And so it was on. And it, I came to the realization that you actually people do this for a living and not just an in investment. And so I and I'll tell the story and I'll tell it really quick. I something came up on Coca-Cola in, in one of the uh, uh, business channel uh, nightly reports. And I said, Dad, Coca-Cola, why wouldn't you buy Coca-Cola? He said, well, it's not that easy. So I took a piece of paper and I didn't know I was doing this, but I was making a chart of Coca-Cola. Every Sunday, I look in the paper, put the closing price in, and I hide it under the sofa cushion. And I took it out, and I said, see, Dad, could have bought it at 40. It's at 46. And he goes, and I remember the price. He said, well, it went down to 31 first. What would you have done? I said, well, I would have bought more. And he laughed. He says, well, that's what I mean where it's not that easy. But that I got hooked, hooked at following price, no matter if it was Coca-Cola or the stock price of anything. And uh, and then when you start talking about it and your parents see that you have interest in it, their close friends had a son that was trading euro dollar futures at the CME. And I know you're familiar with that market because that was when everything was on one trading floor in the late 80s, early 90s. And it was packed. So that interest got me, uh, you know, a summer job between junior year and senior year of high school, 17 as a runner when the floor was just not separated into two floors. So I always tell people after the first week or two of getting over the intimidation of being on a floor like that, uh, you get settled in and I was hooked. I said, this is what I'm doing for a living. So, but it all started just from a simple thing where my dad was, you know, had stocks and he was interested in what they were doing. And it led to having, you know, back and you know this back then you kind of, maybe had to know someone to get a job whether it was the CME or the Board of Trade, right? And um, that's how I got my foot in the door as a 17-year-old. So it was awesome. Yeah, we're so blessed to be in Chicago during the time that we were. And 
myself included, when I first went to the floor, that was it. You're hooked. Uh, There's just, there's nothing else you want to do after (laughs) you go to the trading floor. So talk to us about how you evolved from working in the pits to eventually trading on the screen. Well, after high school, I had to go back to high school. I graduated. I called. I remember the guy's name was Sam, and I was looking for my job again to start. He said, no, we don't have any opportunity. And I'm like, ah, shoot. And uh, so I went to school at night, and I did electrical work for my brother, who was a contractor. So I did that, all the while having my eye on the ball getting back down there. And so finished school in in 96, and I'm driving. I got to tell this story because – it's like the small things people say, and if they're done in a positive and genuine way, they could change the trajectory of someone else's life in a positive also in a, in a positive way as well. So we're driving down the expressway. It's 1996, and it was not the brother that I was working for, and but they both were on the same page. And I told my brother, I said, you know, I think I just become an electrician. You know, Dad's done it. Two of our brothers do it. They've done really well. And he says, throw those school, throw those tools in the blank blank lake. He says, go downtown and do what you want to do. You'll regret not doing it more than you'll regret trying it and maybe failing. And I thought, I mean, if you would have told me, Aunt, yeah, yeah, do electrical work, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you right now. It was that small thing. But it came from a place of being genuine and, and positive. And so what I did was uh, I, I talked to the friends of my parents. and I knew their son was coaching baseball for his son. And I said, hey, does he need help? You know, and I just was trying to get uh, a relationship with him so he can get me back down there, right? So I get, uh, I'm helping him coach his 10 year old kid. Next thing you know, to this day, him and I are best friends, and all came from that. So sure, he got me a job and got me back down there, but it was all from you know just genuine relationships and people trying to look out for each other, and that kind of morphed me into what I do now. But going back to your question. I get back down there in 96. I'm a clerk for a few years. I said, this is not what I want to do. I want to trade. So I get my membership of the Board of Trade. I'm in the pit uh, at the CBOT trading Dow Futures. And it was an illiquid pit with no real orders. And it was a tough pit to – the best way to, to describe it for people that aren't familiar with trading on a floor, it was like a lot of pigeons, traders, with very few breadcrumbs, that type of pit. So it was completely random to me. I couldn't raise my arm to trade. I didn't know no direction of price. And so I'm ready to quit. I'm ready to, to after about eight months. And I'd done training and I'd done some things to prepare me uh, to be able to trade. It's just that randomness. You know, I said, I'd not be able to do this. And my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, she bought me the most important thing I think you could buy someone. And that was time. And she said, just stick around and see what happens. That got me, that time got me an introduction to a guy who was a risk manager at a prop firm. I didn't even know what a prop firm is or was. I go to, I go there, and the next thing you know, uh, I, I'm now privy to guys doing this on the screen. And back then, this was 2000. Um, Eurex, the German exchange, was the only game in town electronically. You remember when they used to call electronic trading when the transition was taking place from the floor to the computer? That's what they called it. And... Um, all these guys were doing was, was trading uh, the second half of the European business day back in, in from like 96, 97. I go there in April of 2000 and, um, you know, I could tell a story about the interview and, 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 and getting the job. But what I try to tell without trying to go on talking too long in this story is, is the fact that um, I learned a little bit about, okay, there's a prop firm. He says, come back next week and the owner can give you an interview uh, I'm thinking, should I take this job? I don't really know what it's about. And I'm still living with my dad. I'm in my early 20s. And my dad says to me, he says, what time do those guys you know, get done trading? I says, they get done at 1030 in the morning. They trade just to the European close. He says, well, get your ASS there before 1030 on the day of the interview and look at the cars in the parking lot. If the cars are nice, they're making money, you get the job, take it. And it was the most <laughs> genius advice you could get. Because I did. And guess what the cars were? Mercedes and BMWs, nice cars. I go, the interview and, and the uh, owner was a, a floor trader, ex-floor trader himself. So we connected. And uh, what got me the job was, he said, one last question. What makes you think you're going to make money here? And I said, because I'm putting myself around guys doing it. He says, you got it. Don't even check his references. You want the job, you got it. That's the answer I'm looking for. And I made up the answer. I didn't know that was the right answer. But I figured, hey, that's what's going on here. 
But uh, he stopped me and he says, it's not just about putting yourself around people making it. It's also around people trying to make it. He says, you're going to find here guys that have made it and are doing really well and are working hard at doing better, but also guys that haven't made any money yet. But yet we're invested in them and we're working with them and you want to be around those guys also. So you don't just get jealous and, and um, you know, beat up that you're the only guy not making money. You want to be with guys trying and working. And so you could see that that push and pull, so to speak. So in, in five minutes or less, that's my story from the floor to, the, to a prop environment. But being around guys doing it and trying to do it and was like the turning point in, in uh, my career or I wouldn't be here. So many similarities to my journey as a trader. Uh, my girlfriend at the time when I began to trade is my wife now. She supported me. I had great family and friend support to where I would have probably been a teamster. <laughs> you know, my brother's an electrician. My other brother's a fireman. They both worked on the floor with me, with me for a period of time. But all of my friends were, you know, teamsters or electricians or or whatever. They were in the union. So I could totally relate to that. We actually grew up, you and I, and around the same areas as well. And one thing you said, which I just think is so important, is look, at you were down there in the pit. And people think just because you were in the pit, like you're going to make money. I was in the same scenario. I was in the S&P pit and I didn't make money. I had to move to the screen. You were in the Dow pit. You didn't make money. You ended up moving to the screen, but you said you needed time. And so many people come into this business with way too short term of a mindset that they need to make money right away or that they actually will be profitable right away. Uh, I know because I did it. You know, I, I thought I was going to be profitable right away, but Going back to what you said, giving yourself time and having that supporting cast, man, those are just those are two key things that I really believe all new traders need to have when they come into this business. Time and supporting cast. You're a hundred percent right. You're you're right on it because you've lived it and you've been been through it. And so it's a couple things of I used to assume people knew more than they did when they get in this business. And now with yep. not only it's not just electronic trading that's been around for 20 years, a good 20 years. It's really the last five or 10 years where the domestic Internet connection has become so good that you don't need T1 lines and servers in your office to trade. You literally could trade in the middle of a, a forest preserve because of you know everything being better technology wise. So you don't freeze up and lock up and have those kinds of technical errors. So now because of the availability is at everybody's fingertips, there are more people who don't know what they're doing thinking it's easier than it is for people listening to this. That's opportunity. Just not. Don't be one of them. And one of the things I assumed people knew was, number one, a lot more than they, they did. And that's not in a condescending way. It's just what I try to do now is make what's basic for me basic to them because the basic stuff in this business is skipped over. And it's not the fault of a new trader because you don't know what you don't know. So you get pulled in to the guy standing in front of his nice house in his Lamborghini and telling you, here's a system, buy it now, sell it now. And then you find that that's not the right path to go down. So you skip over the, the the true dynamics of what makes a market move, what makes price move. And it's basic and it's supposed to be the back of your hand. So it's not your fault. You might, might have skipped over it for newer traders that are listening. It's just when you learn the right basic skills, they're also the advanced skills in this industry. Okay. So um, I, I always draw a lot of analogies and try to tell funny metaphors so it sticks with people as to – why price does what it's going to do or how important it is to learn the basic skills. There are so many people Ant, that are risking their own money and, and it's like trying to be a carpenter and you don't use a tape measure or a pencil, but you don't realize that those are important, right? Or you don't know how to, to cut uh, or use saws. And I think how dangerous those tools are if you don't know how to use them, but how useful they are if you do. So there's so many people in that analogy don't even know those tools exist, and yet they're risking their money trying to bid an offer around prices that they think are going to be support resistance, or they read in a book, or they, they watch some great YouTube videos. And there are a lot of great YouTube videos out there, but there are a lot of YouTube videos that aren't great, that make it seem a little easier than it is. You could make it easier, uh, but you can't think it's easy. Uh, and and you got to put yourself in a position to start thinking like other people think, not just how you think. 
but how others are thinking. Because that's what moves the market, right? When the herd is wrong. Where could you read that on a chart? How could you diligently react? I mean, and, and that's the thing. I could go on and on and talking because of like all through my experience, and I don't want to in this Q&A session because in this day and age, it's harder for people to listen to someone that just goes on talking. But it's just, it's like you, you it, in this business, I went from, you know, being on a floor as a clerk to a trader, to an electronic prop firm where most people don't even know what a prop, a real prop firm is and what it does to backing in, understanding the software side of the business, but backing in to educating people uh, without being lumped in to a lot of people who educate and tell people it's easier than it is. And I'm never going to disparage other people who do this, but it's like you got to be genuine and you got to give people a sense of, you know what, here's some things that are basic that are unbelievably important to understand and read and and put yourself on the right path and then work at it uh, in that respect. But give people a sense of, uh, you know, what they're going to get. So my point is, is I've learned a lot from different like backgrounds and learning people that were super successful before me people that I was more successful with that were coming in learning the right way to people that thinking that red light, green light was the way that they were going to make their money in, in a retail community. Um, and it just has, by teaching, I've been able to learn a lot more than in the last six or seven years without that. So it's been pretty unbelievable in, in what you don't know as a guy, you know, like you and I have come up with our backgrounds, uh, how much more, you know, from talking to people who are, are new, you know, so that's been pretty pretty unbelievable. I can't tell you how much I've learned just in the past six years from other people by doing the podcast. I mean, I've learned so much, and I feel that every single day when I wake up, just I'm learning something new. I was talking about this actually as we record. It's on a Monday. Last night was Sunday night open, and I don't trade Sunday night opens anymore. <laughs> a lot of stories I could talk about how I got blasted on Sunday nights, and so I just stopped trading them. And I've watched them, and I watch all of them, and I've learned so much. And, and I put a tweet out about this, and I said the one thing I've really learned is that I can be patient and just watch. You know, I, I could just sit there and, and just watch the action. And I've written down notes and certain things to this day. Like even last night was a busy open and I was just jotting a couple of things down that I was seeing and just, you know, once again, it's, it's, it's something that we're always learning about. It's, it's, it's a never ending process, uh, evolving as a trader. Um, I, I want to move on with you though. I want to move on to you finding your strategy, finding your edge. We know your backstory now. We know you want to work with a prop group, and that prop group was actually David Ellis's prop group, ITG, which um, a lot of my good friends, a lot of really great traders have come out of there, out of that group. How did you end up finding your strategy, finding your edge? Well, two things that would really resonate with people is it's the same two things that you do to buy a car or a house. It's number one, know what other markets influence the market you're trading. So correlations. All right. Not that there's always a leader and a lagger. Oh, this market goes up. I could buy life is good. It's not that easy, but it's, it, it's important to correlate markets that influence your price. And I'll get into that in a second. And the other one, is order flow, but not in a super general sense because order flow has become a buzz phrase. People do a search and they try to learn everybody and their cousin is teaching order flow and there's nothing wrong with that. But when I learned it, I learned to ask the right questions. And in the same, in, what I try to tell people now is forget about the right answer. Look for the right questions. And you're almost given, forced to ask those in a prop environment because you're around guys that are doing what you're trying to learn. But it always came back to those two concepts. Even when I was a clerk, it was I'm clerking the euro dollars, which is an interest rate market. I'm looking and I got to be on top of where price is and be pretty accurate, right? Because you get a customer to tear your head off if you give them a bad quote. Well, I was told, look at the bonds. And if they rally six or seven ticks, watch your offers. Well, what does that mean? Well, offers in the euro dollars might turn to bid because the bonds are rallying. Now, it wasn't perfect science, but it was an extraordinary helper 
to understand how to do your job better. So any tra- or any strategy that people have that I have have to include those two concepts, right? You could bring in other things, and that's great, but they have to include those two. So when I was in the pit, okay, I understood order flow. I took some great classes about pit trading and understanding where your liens are, understanding uh, where uh, big orders are coming in and what price and what that meant. But I was weak on correlations. And I shouldn't have been because that's what I used as a clerk. But it didn't dawn on me. And this is what's so important for other people listening, that the obvious sometimes runs right by you. I'm standing in the pit. The whole other side of the, the, the pit, and, and you, you would, you'd appreciate this, they're looking at the board. They're, all their heads are turned looking at the board. And it didn't dawn on me that they were looking at the S&P price at the other exchange because it was going to lead the Dow futures. So the S&Ps went up. They could buy offers and get long the Dow. Maybe it would follow it. Maybe it wouldn't. Well, what that did for them and allowed them to trade was it stripped out randomness and randomness was really difficult for me to trade because and and it would be electronically as well if you have no idea that price could go up then you're going to have a lot of fear and a lot of fear is just going to make you miss a lot of good stuff and and it's because when you are right you feel like you got lucky or you feel like it was a good guess that's not going to last you're going to be lucky for a long time and so my strategy always came down to why am I bullish? Let's just play from that side. Why am I bullish? All right. Is it fundamentals? Is it direction? Is it some pattern? Or, and, and then where is a good location to execute that opinion? Because people think that if I could find a great way to create an opinion, I'm there. You're not there. That's not even half of it. You need a good location to execute that opinion. So your strategy and your setup then has to, to quickly morph into, all right, I'm bullish. For good reasons, where do I get long? And where the hell am I wrong? And and you have to notice when you talk to people, when you learn from people, when you are even trading, implementing your own strategy is always know where you're wrong first. And you know this from taking the same education on the floor back in the 90s, the whole know where you're getting out before you get in. And so that's where your risk is. So people want to learn how to manage your risk. Well, start by knowing what it is before you take it. I always try to end when I talk to big groups, manage your risk before you take it, which means know where you're getting out for losers before you get in. So that's a part of finding a location. But I'm looking for locations, just not on pullbacks, but I'm looking for locations where in a chart and reading flow, not every uptick and downtick because you go crazy, but reading flow where I'm bullish and I'm waiting for selling to come into the market at a price that I think could be support. But the qualifier is selling comes in and the damn thing can't go down. And you know as well as I do, as well as anybody who's traded for five days or five years or 50 years, that when something is supposed to happen and doesn't, has to be where your clue is. So when there's selling that comes in, a lot of people will say, well, then be short. Well, if selling comes in and that's the right side, it probably already ran down and the premium is out. Because selling should push price down. And when it does, there's no clue there. But when selling comes in in a moment that you think there could be a bounce and it doesn't move price, like a, a, a big push of selling come in aggressively, price couldn't react lower. That's your when moment. And then you adjust to where am I wrong in this instance and what should happen. Now it's not random, right? The probabilities of you got support, you're bullish for the right reasons, now you got selling coming in and it can't go down. Now you've got probabilities so it doesn't feel like a good guess when you're right. And a lot of people that want a green light, red light would rather just say, all right, I'm bullish, just buy 46s. You know as well as I do, you're not bidding 46s. It's going to fill you, eh, maybe go down to 45 half in the S&Ps and then rally to your target of 50 or 60. It's not going to work. You're going to miss a lot of winners because it's not going to fill you and then rally and you're going to catch every loser. So it could never be that easy. You're going to have to have some skill in finding that when moment of other people trapped or stuck. And it goes back to what I said earlier. You have to you have to listen in a way and watch what other people are doing because m- 
price isn't going to go up unless it's cheap. It's not going to be cheap unless you find buyers. And you're not going to find buyers until you get people stuck short. So one of the things I've said to people that has resonated, like when Mickey had told us back in the 90s, second trade first or know where you're getting out before you get in, it's always stuck with us. Stuck with us. One thing that I think sticks with people that hear it is after you buy it, you're a seller. And after you sell it, you're a buyer. Meaning after you buy it to get long, you now have to sell it at some point, right? Five seconds, five minutes, five days. You have to sell it. Well, in the case that I'm trying to walk you through uh, a strategy is at a moment you think the market could bounce. If you can get people who sell it because to get short, now they have to buy it. And if you could tie in, if you think of circles of skill and you could overlap the circles where you got good support because people were trapped short there moments ago or a day ago, uh, that's why it's support. You're bullish for some good fundamental reasons. And at that moment, you're thinking of getting long. You qualify in that area where a new group of sellers who now turn to buyers sell it and now they got the big grapefruit eyes because they have to buy it and that's what and where and how the whole dynamic of a price that rallies where it comes from. That's what makes good support good. Trap shorts that have to buy it and they're begging. And then, you know, price rolls down there and you get a bunch, a new batch of aggressive selling and it doesn't go down at that particular moment. And that's your, that again becomes your win moment. And the metaphor I use, Ant, is punch a guy in the face. If you punch a guy in the face and he doesn't flinch, I don't know about you, but I'm running <laughs> the other way. <laughs> Too old. You know, back when we were young, we'd stay there and get our butts kicked. Now I'm running. Where are those moments in the market? And that has to be a part of anyone's strategy. Even if you're a, a, a longer time frame trader, you know, you still have to trade real time. You have to read real time. You have to find good location. So one of the things about strategies are, are you correlating with other markets? Do you understand what's driving the market? Like this whole thing, people are going to watch this or listen to this uh, in, in months or in years. But right now we came out of Sunday because of new information that, um, you know, politically where Bolton might have, you know, might uh, elongate this impeachment. Markets don't like that. The coronavirus is still a problem. Markets don't like that. You have to know unequivocally that's driving the market. You have to anticipate, not that you're going to trade news, but you understand that, hey, this comment or that comment could make us bullish or bearish immediately and now diligently react to it. That's about being a trader, knowing what's driving. That's about being uh, properly prepared before the week, before the day and everything else. Every guy who's traded uh, successfully, that trades successfully, profitably, knows exactly what's driving the market. We anticipate what could come out next, helps us frame our opinion. And if nothing's driving the market, then it becomes more a pattern in a chart, you know, trying to buy a good pullback off a healthy rally, but in support where people missed it, stuck short, and sellers come in and it can't go lower. So, I mean, in a nutshell, that is where I'm looking to execute. It's all about location for me. Hey everybody, a quick pause here to talk about FTSE Russell. They are a leading global provider of benchmarks, analytics, and data solutions. The Russell 2000 Index is a key benchmark for small cap U.S. stocks. Be sure to check out the E-mini Russell 2000 Index Futures Contract, symbol RTY. For more information on FTSE Russell and their products, please visit FTSERussell.com. I want to go back and dissect some of the things that you said. And I heard a lot about execution, something I talk a lot about. I, I heard you talk about correlations, what's driving the market, reactions. And also, you talked about position sizing, maybe not directly, but indirectly. And I want to start off with using correlations. So I'm going to tell you how I use them. And I just want to have a conversation about this because I think that this is such an important part of trading is utilizing correlations. Now, I don't think there's a right or wrong way to do this. I'm just going to talk about the way that I use them and I want to see what you think. So I look at whatever market that I feel is correlating with or against my market. I look at that market on the same time frame with the same exact uh, settings of my indicators. This way I am able to compare those markets, those market correlations, 
and how they react off of the indicators versus just looking for upticks or downticks because I think that could be a wild goose chase a lot of the times. Thoughts on this? Right. So you don't you certainly don't want to just every time they hit the yen, you're going to buy the S&P and life's going to work for you because that's not going to happen. You're absolutely right. You want apples to apples is the way I read what you said. Yeah. Right. So you can't look at a 60 minute yen to trade <laughs> the the ES for two points or three points. Yeah. So yes, apples to apples. Um, but again, you can't. There are times where the bonds and yen aren't opposite S and P's or stock indexes. Right. So another edge is like when when you ask me what my edge is, it's never one single thing. It's the overlap of not 10 things. That's too many, but a few things, two things, such as the driver just came in. It was an outlier and uh, meaning an outlier comment that came in, surprised the market, we're bullish. And you're looking to buy a pullback where you think there's support. And then you use the yen because the driver's got fear attached to it. Right. So if you just think of two circles and when they overlap, that's where your edge is going to be. Not just one skill, not just one particular downtick, buy it, uptick, sell it when they're opposite. So yes, you definitely want to have your your ancillaries that I call them as um, you know apples to apples on time frames. You want to make sure that they're tight, either opposite or correlating together. Also understand there isn't always a lead lag, but sometimes there is. So if I'm bullish, here here's the other the uh, answer to your question. When you're looking for to fade a rally, which there's nothing wrong with that, you're looking to fade a rally in the S&Ps, and you run up, and you think that this there's buying that's getting exhausted, and you think that it's a price where you, you could top off and start heading back down. And at that moment, you see the Russell and the NASDAQ making higher highs, and they pop. And... At that moment, the ES, which usually charts similarly with the NASDAQ, they work together, doesn't rally. And it normally would with a big pop in the NASDAQ or maybe a big pop in the Russell. And now you got now you have your head scratch moment to say, I'm already looking to fade this market. I think it's expensive. I'm into resistance. Maybe I see some buying we can't rally, but I see ancillaries that generally move together and they're not. And again, that's the clue. Where others are trapped buying it because it's just been working to the, in this rally. And you find where all those longs from below and at that moment where we're at maybe turning to sellers that drive price lower. So it's using correl- correlations that move together. But when they don't is like why – and this is what the owner of the prop firm talked in like the first month or so. And, and you know how he taught it? It wasn't some big grand meeting. I got to say something. Everybody listen. And, and this big, you know, here's an invitation to come and learn this great stuff. He said it. And I scooted over my chair and looked at a chart to have him explain it more. That's how I learned it. He says, don't you ever scratch your head when everybody is buying the boon because the bonds are rallying? The bonds just spiked four ticks and we didn't move up. Is it a surprise that the boon just got stepped on? In the next five minutes, did you not see that? Did you not notice that? Did you not feel that? So it's that moment of when correlations are not working where you get your clue, your tell for poker players. Great poker players, they don't know what the next card is. They do read other people well. And our job is to read the market well. Where are the clues? Where could you say, what's the right question? Like I try to get people to ask is it's not doing what it should do. Well, how do you get to ask that question? You get to ask that question, for example, when other markets are strong and we're not. And it's like maybe those markets just got expensive and there's someone in here bigger than us holding this market down and absorbing all these shorter time frame buyers, turn them into sellers and creates the you know pullback off the highs. And I know that makes sense to you, so I don't want to ask, does that make sense? But I, I hope that makes sense to the people listening. I think it does. And and really for me in my career, some of my best trades are when correlations have gotten broken down, exactly what you said. I mean, I I look at the 10-year next to the S&P all the time. And one trade that I look at a lot 
uh, when I'm looking at that as an opposite correlation is, let's just say, for example, the 10-year is going down and the S&P is going up on a particular day. And I'm trading the 10-year. It gets the support. S&P keeps drifting higher. I don't have any resistance near. And it just keeps you know grinding up. And the 10-year is just sitting on support. And you see that that opposite correlation was happening in the morning. And now the 10-year can't go lower anymore. Well, a lot of times that reaction off support is great for me because I think it's a great opportunity because now all of a sudden the the, the sellers can't get the 10-year any lower. And even if the S&P is going up, you've got some people trapped. And then I like that for a long and the 10-year. Because he's bluffing, right? The market's bluffing or something's changed where you could develop that clue. So, you know, when people listen, it's like the edge is Always think of, of, a, of a great invention. What do people ask? Why didn't I think of that, right? Those are the moments where you ask that for someone who invented something. And so with an edge, I didn't invent this. But when you're good and trained to react to information that you, again, trained yourself over time to at least look for, you have a chance of recognizing it because why wouldn't you use a correlation to value price? You do it when you buy a car. You do it when you buy a house. Hey, I tell people jokingly, you know, next time, next time you go buy a car, don't compare it to other dealerships. Just uh, bring in a Fibonacci chart and try to negotiate price. See how well it goes, right? And nothing gets Fibonacci. And my joke is, the only thing I like about Fibonacci is that he was Italian. But uh, <laughs> and people laugh. But there's value to Fibonacci. But you got to qualify it at its, you know, three eight twos and six one eights and stuff like that. You're not going to use it in a uh, you know in a vacuum so any one person's edge has to include the ability to correlate it with things that influence it just like you do when you buy and sell other stuff and then you also got to know the dynamic of why price actually moves and then lastly it's like just going off of what we were trained and brought up if people go back and listen to your interviews with Brad and Brett you know there's no coincidence that we'll take a news event Right. And it runs the price down, but it was like and they call it brilliantly stupid news. And and it's like, well, if the market was really that bearish uh, or if this news rather was really that bearish, why aren't we still going down? Why did we, we retrace the entire down move in five minutes and are actually higher than we were when we started? Is that not telling you there's underlying strength? Of course it is. So the news just got all the emotional people to get short. Now they're stuck and it got priced cheap. But it's showing you underlying strength because if it was bearish, we wouldn't have come back this far this fast. Another thing that was like a uh, something desk-to-desk banter where I learned a great deal about someone saying, hey, be careful, short, because, hey, if, if, if that news XYZ was that bearish, why the hell are we above where we started? And it's just like, well, why didn't I think of that, right? Yeah. So you start – to think of that. Another it's the thing I tell things. people, Ant, it's a simple thing, yeah, man. Simple simplicity. It's funny you say that because the only thing I want to be an expert in is simplicity. And I got that on my whiteboard. Expert in simplicity. I tell people, if you want to be an expert, go become a chemist or a doctor. Where you know, if there isn't a high level of, of exactness, the building falls down. If you're looking for exactness, you're in the wrong business. You want probabilities, but you want to be good at one thing: being wrong, managing your risk but also doing things that you know most other people aren't doing. I know. Listen, when I started talking to people that are newer in this, I assume that they kind of knew this stuff and understood it. It's far removed to what people will ever get to when they're trying to study and research and train themselves. You and I got fortunate where we learned the right way pretty much the first way, right? Coming up through the floor and through professional venues and environments, and we didn't get distracted. With with um, you know some for YouTube videos, which there's some good stuff out there, but you get the point where we learned the right way the first way, and it's not people's fault to learn the wrong way first. You don't know what you don't know, and I'd fall victim to a lot of distractions that people fall into when they try to get better and study. So um, you know it's against the marketing because marketing is what just just show the house you live in, the cars you drive, and people will come to you. I don't want those people. I want people like people you interview uh, where there's a sense of being genuine and telling people what they should expect and what the right paths are. And it's not always those trying to get them to have the cookie monster eyes and showing them cookies. You want to give them the, 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 the right stuff 
so that they have a chance like you and I had learning the right way, you know, early on in our careers. Yeah. And for me, the right way was just having the right guidance around me because there were so many people around me with winning strategies. But when I tried to trade those exact same strategies, all I did was lose money. So a, a big reason why I I was able to find success is because I was able to take different pieces from the people that were having success and then build my own strategies based off of the things that made sense to me. Uh, and I think that that is, that is really true leadership and, and a great mentor by supporting your ideas and helping you, you know, put those ideas into play. Like you guys at your prop firm, you guys all had similar attributes, but you guys all didn't trade exactly the same, right? Absolutely. You're not going to look exactly like someone else, but you can look closer. No one's going to trade alike, period. Like no two people are going to look exactly alike. And I think that's another weakness people come into this business where they try to mimic exactly someone they're learning from. It's not going to happen. People have different personalities, risk tolerance, the ways they, they filter and view things. And so there is the proper foundation. There are the proper basic techniques and concepts. But don't fall victim in trying to replicate exactly what someone else does because they're different and, and uh, for all kinds of reasons. So when you look up in a prop firm, you might see, or in a pit, eh, most people might be long or might be, might be looking at the same things, but they're not long at the exact same price. They're not out at the exact same price. So while you don't want to be um, always in front of the herd, because when you're wrong, you get trampled, you do want to know where the herd is because the opportunities of that turn, listen, the opportunities aren't turns. Turns on a pullback and then a re-rally, turns off the lows, off the highs. So to find turns, you got to find where the herd might be wrong. But don't fall victim to trading exactly like someone else because it's not going to happen. Yeah, and, and something that we've talked a lot about today is reactions. I say this all the time. If, just because my strategy gives me an area to buy or sell and I actually put a tweet out about this the other day. It says, just because my strategy gives me a green light, I don't just run in to the position, right? Just as if I'm in a traffic light and uh, if the light turns green, especially in South Florida in, in, in during season right now, <laughs> I don't run through because uh, who knows who the hell is going to be going through that, that, that red light right. or, or yellow to red. So I'm always cautious getting in. But at the same time, I'm ready to be aggressive at any given point too because of the reaction, right? If it hits an area... Uh, and let's just let's go through a situation with you. It hits an area that you like. You looked at your correlations. They're either going to tell you what that. Okay, look at this is this is a great opportunity here. Um, I'm getting everything I want, or they're saying, you know what, I might want to be some uh, some pause here to get in. Talk to us about how you execute based upon the reactions. Well, here just like this morning, we gap open lower. Markets are fearful. I'm not looking to catch a bottom because there might not be one. So I'm looking for a rejection and a bearish to bullish moment where I think that everybody and their cousin are bearish on a day like today. And maybe they should be. So wait if we can get a reaction back up. First B2B moment I call them, bearish to bullish. Then I'm not looking just to buy it anywhere on there. But a small pullback off that rally into where I think there could be support now at the reactionary moment you're asking about on a day like today where fear is driving the market, when I could get the yen or bonds to downtick in an area of support and or selling to come in and we can't go down, that's my when moment to click. If my, am I going to work a bid or just lift an offer? That depends on what's there. But it's going to be in that one or two tech area that I'm going to execute that bullish opinion. So I just walk people through why I would have the bullish opinion. But at that moment, to react diligently to what I see in the ancillaries that are working better today, bonds go down, stocks go up. Yen goes down, stocks go up, right, in that in that fear kind of risk on, risk off. Um, so that's an example of being, being able to, to react diligently. To your point of driving, it's like what I tell people is you can't think – about where the brake pedal is when the guy in front of you slams on their brakes. You have to be aware, maybe know you just checked your blind spot a second ago, nobody is on the right side, and you scoot over. 
you don't have to think about where the brake pedal is or you're in the guy's back seat. You don't even have to hit the brakes because you are aware and anticipating based on knowing who's around you what you're going to do. In trading, it's a ready aim fire. So the ready was, let's see if we can get a bearish to bullish transition where you get everybody who was bearish stuck to create some upside. The the uh, aim is into near-term support that just happened on this spike or this rally. And it'd be easier to show you on a chart. But And then and then the, the fire is when the ancillaries tick down, which is what I want to see to execute a long position, right? Now you're in the position. And then there's additional edges of is the position working? You know the first thing to tell you a position's working? Price. Are you getting a head start? Not where you take profit right away, but you can. It's always the definition of a good spot. And I think when people kind of create that progression, ready, aim, fire, and it's what did I just create? Correlations and order flow all within that particular um, setup and trade. So it's like and, – and no matter your time frame, again, it's, it's about seeing some of these things line up to execute and then start to define whether or not your location is good. Knowing where your risk is and knowing where your targets are important, obviously. But it's the uh, the dynamic of, well, why price would go up. You have to have a lot of shorts stuck. And I think I got that. And I also think that I got this, this location good for, I don't want to say effortless. I don't want to <laughs> jinx myself on the next trade. But effortlessness where you don't take a lot of heat right away. And you're not sitting in this position for, for 10 minutes, especially on a day like today. And you know this. If you're sitting with an open position at or around your price for 10 minutes, it's probably ain't going to go your way, right? You got to be cognizant of the day that it is because you always want price to go your way ASAP. Doesn't have to happen in a second, but you want your area not to be violated. Funny you say that because I actually keep a timer up on my computer uh, and I'm always watching how long I'm into a trade because That's awesome. I, I want that awareness. That's um for you know just myself sometimes i'll look at it and be like wow you know because you'll be staring at the screen and, and it's amazing how if you just sat at your computer and you were just browsing the internet you probably get tired and stiff from sitting at your screen yes. for a period of time but uh, i i don't sit anymore i stand but I, I could basically stand on my computer if i have a position on all day and it's like i never get sore <laughs> time just goes by so i keep a timer up just to kind of just a little bit of a reminder that's you know what I have to interrupt you because that's one of those moments where why didn't I think of that that people have listening to it so that's awesome. Hey everybody, I want to take a quick pause and talk about RJO Futures. They are a long-standing brokerage firm with personal broker relationships to learn, discuss, and trade the futures markets. To learn more about RJO Futures, please visit rjofutures.com. Last topic I want to talk about today is position sizing. I'm going to explain to you how I do it, and then we'll uh, we'll hear what you think about that. So for me, position sizing is have a risk per trade, know your second trade first, like we discussed, and adjust my contract size based upon how far I am away from the stop. Now, many times people have probably heard me say, no one to be big, small, or not at all, and then there's going to be based upon market conditions and situations to where I may trade bigger, smaller, or not at all. But overall, how I determine how big I'm going to trade on a normal position is using a range of execution, second trade first, how far away am I from my stop, and that's how many contracts I'm going to trade. Because I think that too many traders make the mistake of trading the same contract size on each and every trade. Well, if your stop is always the exact same distance, that may work, but what happens in a situation where your stop's the exact same distance and you work the bidder of the offering, you don't get filled? Well, now what do you do? <laughs> you know, sometimes those could be your best trades, and that's why I have a range of execution and I'll just trade smaller if we get a little bit further away from my stop and I'll adjust. You know, I, I think this also goes into why I don't think trading one lots is a good idea and why I'm so happy that CME has put out the micros because it gives traders opportunities to be able to trade multiple contracts that before maybe can only afford to trade one or two of, of the bigger contracts. So that's how I go about position sizing. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know what you're doing is you're trading yourself as much as you're trading the market. You're just because 
your stop is, quote, too far away based on what position you normally have on. Doesn't mean it's not a great trade, great thought, great location. So you're trading yourself and you're allowing yourself to adjust so you still could get on the team was something that a, a guy I traded next to would always say, you know, it bounced and I'm not on the team or I got on the team, right? And so um, that's a, just a, a ingenious way to adjust yourself uh, to your strategy uh, as far as the market. Today, for example, what I'll do is cut my size and increase my risk because the markets are more volatile. And you can't, when you come in as a one-lot trader, you're handcuffed because you can't get smaller than one lots, and let's leave the micros out of it. Let's just say the minis. You, you can't get smaller than a one lot in the minis. You can lose a lot of money with one lots, especially if you don't know what you're doing. And so that emotion is going to be at play. But yet you're handcuffed because you can't scale. And you put yourself on an emotional roller coaster when you're all in, all out with any position. And I like, in order to stay on the theme of trading yourself, is if you get a winner and, and you could – take it but yet it's your entire position it's a tougher decision because you like don't want to leave more meat on the bone and there's more on the table and so you don't take it and it goes back to your break even now you're mad and now when you're mad you're not trading the market anymore you're trading that emotion but when you could scale even a little bit you've, you've done two things if it keeps going up you're not mad because you got something on if it goes back to your entry you're not mad because you took some profit right now with that being said it's a new guys can't just come in and trade Multiple contracts in life is good because, you know, prop firm won't allow you to do certain things. And that's a whole nother webinar on the mistakes people make that they wouldn't even be allowed to make if they were in a professional environment. But that aside, um, for me, number one, is it volatile? The more volatile the market is, the smaller I'll trade because my risk is it, it just going to go up based on price action. You have no choice. You're not trading the market and yourself instead of just being – uh, you know, that stiff branch that doesn't bend and just breaks. So you got to adjust your size down if you're a multiple contract trader when it's more volatile and then actually up when it's really slow and you get maybe into what's called summer markets in the summer or just tight range markets that just don't move uh, a six point range for the whole day and the S&Ps is slow. That's when you can get away to trade slightly bigger. Am I scientific? Uh, maybe like you are, and I think what you do is, is great, and it's a great way for people to know when to adjust their size. But I'm not as scientific as you, but when it's really slow and really busy, I automatically adjust my size up or down. And then based on the um, how I'm trading, how I objectively know how I'm trading, um, adjust my size. I don't want to trade bigger because I'm trading great because – just because I'm trading great ant, because as you know, you're trading great with smaller size and then you start trading or the markets change and, and <laughs> you're committed bigger size. So you're right. So you can't just do it for that, but you have to know objectively and it has nothing always to do with PL, but objectively that, you know what? You can't be a two lot trader in this market the way you're approaching it. You needed to go to three and you need to go to four. That needs to be your size. And then you adjust from there. If you go from one to four or four to eight, too much, you're going to trade the emotion. You have to go, and I learned this early in my career, you have to push yourself to trade bigger, but at the right time where a four lot feels like a one lot used to, then you know you went up incrementally. That's a sizing plan that has a lot of detail around it because you can't just say it. Three good winning days in a row, let me trade bigger. There's got to be something else involved or, or involved in it because, um, again, you'll trade you'll trade uh, great with smaller size and crappy with bigger size because you went up too far too fast. So I don't try to adjust too often, so I'm not stuck in that scenario. But I definitely adjust based on the volatility of the market. And I look at simple things, range and volume and what's driving it. One other thing I got to add. I will trade bigger in a diligent, and this isn't something that everyone should do right off the bat, absolutely not, but I will trade bigger, the double, triple click, if there's something that came across the wires that I know I caught soon enough. Because, you know, a lot of the algorithms catch it and then you hear the news, but you still know where it started. You still know how important that news could be as a market-moving event. I want to have bigger size for a bigger opportunity. And I've become really good at being trained that way 
my first year or two in the prop firm of knowing what's important and what's a surprise. And if I can catch a surprise, I want to load up, so to speak. Does that make sense? It does. And one thing that I did on a regular basis when I was trying to become a bigger trader was days I was up, everything was going my way after periods of success. I would wait for the next opportunity and I would trade a little bit bigger on an up day and be committed to turning out of that position right away. And I did that because I wanted to feel what it felt like to have on a larger contract size because I just felt that there was just no reason for me to just the next day come in and just start trading bigger because I was making money very similar to what you said. I felt on days where I was up good money, doing well. If an opportunity came my way that I really liked, I would trade it a little bit bigger than normal, feel what it felt like, maybe trim to normal position size uh, right after that, even if it was a tick winner or loser. And this way I could feel what it was like to have that contract size on. That was very, very beneficial for me. No, you're 100% right. And people have to understand that there has to be a plan to your size. And you, you, you make more money by trading slightly bigger. You don't make more money by saying, hey, this strategy for me is working. Let me find something to add to it so my targets could be uh, further out. Instead of making, on average, three points, I want to make 10 points. And no, it's to trade what you're trading well with slightly bigger size and get used to it. I left a lot of money on the table, but for a short period of time in the first year of my uh, career because I was comfortable trading two lots, which seems like it's small, but not in the market I was trading because I was trading the DAX, which is 25 euros a tick, and the Euro stocks, which is really thin back then. So two lots weren't small, but the market was liquid enough to trade bigger. And so until someone pulled me aside and said, you got to have a plan to go up incrementally. And believe it or not, when you trade eights, what would you feel like right now? I'd be like, holy, you know what? I couldn't do it. It'd be too emotional. You know, two to eight? He said, exactly. But if you went from two to eight incrementally with a plan, an eight will feel like a two lot. And sure enough, it did. And I, and you know what made me mad? Why didn't I do this six months ago, right? That, that thing. But you got to have a plan to what size you want to trade. And, and part of like, asking a uh, trader's edge part is do you catch opportunities in big market moves when there's a trump tweet when there's a u.s china trade uh, uh event last year which happened several times throughout the year not every single one you're going to get it a little late but did it change the direction of the market and you could play it from the right side because you know how to diligently react and scoot over into the right lane because you know how and you anticipated what we used to call tape bombs. You anticipated what the next tape bomb was going to be. And so maybe you made your week or your month in one trade. And I'm not advocating that simple or everybody to go and after they're done listening to this interview, do that because that takes skill. But that's an advantage where you have to put yourself. I don't like when people say, um, well, the news is the news and I'm just going to do what I'm going to do and not worry about it. For some of the news and some of the economic number releases, that's fine. But there are too many market-moving events, especially over the last three years, that you have to be able to anticipate and take advantage of the opportunity with the swings it gives you, including what we have now for people listening in the future in late July or January here in 2020, because there are events that are going to change the direction and therefore your bias and therefore your ability to react diligently. Um, very important. And it's an advantage you want to have in your tool chest. That's got to be your ability to read news is got to be a tool in your tool chest uh, the right way. And I was fortunate along with Brad and Brett and, 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 and Danny guys that you interviewed from, from our, our shop, our firm. Um, we were fortunate to learn from really smart guys that were half trader, half analysts, right? Boy, they explained it well. They understood that they were talking to guys that might not have been economists, but they were traders themselves. They knew how to teach, how to interpret news so you could react to it and know when not to react. Or as Brad and Brent talk about, know when it's stupid news and it just gets the market out of line temporarily. All important stuff and advantages that help you adjust your size accordingly. Awesome stuff so far, Ant. We're not done yet. Rapid fire questions next if you're ready for those. Absolutely. 
Fire away. All right, everybody. Our rapid fire segment is sponsored by Trading Technologies. Trade the global markets with TT. They are the world's fastest commercially available futures trading platform. Now with integrated tools for advanced options trading, cryptocurrencies, and trade surveillance. You can try it now for free at tryttnow.com. And first question for you, what traders influenced your life the most and why? Well, one was in the trader and investor, my dad, because like I said earlier, he was uh, an investor and he played markets on longer time frame, but it got me interested that you could do this for a living and gave me the most important discipline of all. And that was, he said, you know, if you know how you'll have a job, if you know why you'll be the boss, always find out why things are happening. The second person was a trading mentor. His name was Bob and he was a Euro dollar trader and he was the guy that I tried to just get to meet to get a job down there as a baseball coach. Next thing you know, we're dear friends and, and best friend of mine uh, to this day. And the reason why he was so important was because not just the simplicity of what to watch and what to do, but the genuineness and the advice he gave you was from his heart because he, he told you you sucked because he wanted you to get better, not because he disliked you or any animosity. And that's so important with anyone who influences you. Do they tell you you suck in a non-condescending way but because they want you to get better? And, and truly love what you're doing. And, and uh, so those really important people in my life. What was one of the hardest things for you to overcome in trading? The randomness, man, of raising my hand and saying, well, I'm on a buy 60s. We're going to 50 or are we going to 70? And if it goes to 70, I'm lucky. So until you strip the randomness out and it becomes probability and, it, and it's not a good guess anymore, um, you're always going to struggle pulling the trigger. And the randomness was addressed to me by the cause and effect of how news influences price and another market can influence price and how too much buying and we can't go up means we're probably going to get weak and, and studying that on different time frames. How has your trading process evolved over the years? Instead of being tick sensitive, and I've been more area sensitive. So if you just look for a fictitious price of four or five, you know, back in the day, if you were long fives and it was five offer, you're looking to get out. Now you got to look and say, you know, I'm long from four, but it's really two bit at seven in a way. And so now, you know, you just got to extend your risk a little bit more. If that means cutting your size, fine. But you trade areas instead of prices. What is one attribute that you believe every trader should have? Uh, the ability to, to be around other people that are like-minded, that they like and have those relationships. That's a, a missing piece today in being able to trade alone. But you have to be able to put yourself around not just people, but good people. It might be just one or two people, but work on what you're doing. You can't be objective unless you're doing it and bouncing it off other people that care about you and you care about them. Favorite book about trading? You know, when I find one, I'll let you know. Um, there, there's some <laughs> good ones out there. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a, a guy who reads a lot. So I'm not. There are great books I might have read. I just can't read a whole book because I feel like the first third was good and the last two thirds were just a repeat of the first third to make it 300 pages. So I can't get through a lot of it. But I think that any book that has to do uh, on not teaching you how to trade necessarily uh, the market, but also teaching you how to trade yourself and, and the problems you're going to have trying to take what you read into real life, real time when there's emotions um, and money on the line. That transition is important to follow up on and, and work on. If you had to pick a profession other than trading, what would it be? Well, I did electrical work before I traded and that would have been it. However, since I got in this business and you could appreciate this, it would be hard to find another profession outside of this because you're so used to trading for yourself and you're your own boss. So it would have to be something as an entrepreneur, uh, where you put in your time, the more time you, there's always a proportion in time you put in, uh, that's efficient to results. And so it'd have to be something that was, was an entrepreneur, but electrical work before I was introduced and got successful in, in this business. What's the best piece of advice you received about trading? Well, there's been a lot, but the one thing that just sticks was what we learned in, in the pit trading classes that were offered back in the late 90s. Because not remember the classes were actually on the floor after hours. So the pit was the classroom and the brokers were the teachers and the traders were the students. And what he had said over and over and over again 
was know where you're going to get out before you get in, like a shortstop. Where am I going to throw this ball if it's hit to me? Always asking. That's the right question. Where am I getting out before I get in? That whole second trade first mentality. Um, and then also was, in a way, I might have said it myself, in a, in a uh, group environment, but Dave, who was the owner of the prop firm, extraordinarily successful guy, he used it. He says, can I use that line? I said, absolutely. And I said, uh, trading is like shooting fish in a barrel, and sometimes you're the fish. If you could go back in time and give the younger you a piece of advice, what would it be? You know, I thought about when people say that, and that comes out a lot, um, it would be to not try to hit a home run. Uh, when I see my dad investing in certain stocks, I try to buy that stock that was going to, you know, make me a millionaire just on that one stock. And there might have been some that I didn't, but not try to hit a home run with any one particular trade or idea. You know, a career is supposed to be thousands and thousands of trades. Why would anyone be important? So I would tell myself to settle down and not look for that home run. And then the other thing would be um, for me, because I met. A woman that if I met her again, I'd marry the same person a thousand out of a thousand times. I wouldn't want to tell my younger self something that would um, uh, you know, disallow me to meet the people I met and the friends I have and the woman I married. So I'd be careful with telling my younger self too much. If you had an elevator, pitch me your edge in trading. What would you say? Be able to take the consumer skills you have and reapply them into trading. And and that's what you you should learn and have where you're always looking at what influences the market you trade and then also looking at asking the right questions of a lot of selling comes in and the market can't go down. That's your win moment to implement a bullish or long bias. Last question for today. Favorite thing to do when you're not trading? You know, I need one because uh, my hobbies, you try to take <laughs> up golf and things like that, and, and uh, I just get more mad than I get happy. My hobby is spending time with my kids and coaching their, their sports, their baseball and their basketball. That's become something I really enjoy doing. Yeah, that's a great thing. And, and where can people find you on Twitter and give us a website to check out? Website is edgetradinggroup.com and the Twitter is at tradinggro1. Um, and I do push out stuff on Twitter uh, weekly, but uh, those two would be the best best uh, places to find more about me quickly and before we let you go what will people be learning when they go to your website well again going back to the simplicity the, the things that what i've learned that are are skipped over it's not red light green light it's being able to find the moments where you could take two circles of skill compare contrast and order flow tracking buyers and sellers and when those are overlapped is when to pull the trigger and address the biggest weakness of all. And that is, okay, you're bullish, you're bearish, but when do I buy it? When do I sell it? When do I con consistently strip out this randomness? So getting people to forget about the right answers, getting people to ask the right questions. Why didn't this happen? Why didn't this, uh, did this not happen? And, and we were supposed to rally and we didn't, that's your advantage. Those are your head scratch moments and your clue that, uh, hey, if you're a detective and you're interviewing a guy who might have done the crime, you found something that led you to believe you got the right guy, you got the right trade. So again, market relationships and order flow, combining those two to execute and manage your risk all together. This was awesome, man. Thank you so much for coming on Futures Radio Show. It's my pleasure, and you do a great job with these interviews, so, so keep it up. It's really, really amazing stuff. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Futures Radio Show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. You can listen to all of our episodes on FuturesRadioShow.com, iTunes, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher.